0: Well, it's always great to be with you, and uh, this morning is no exception. Thank you, Rick, for leading and for all that have contributed so far. If you've got a Bible, will you turn to Galatians chapter 5? Galatians chapter 5, we're going to be reading from verse uh, 13 onwards of Galatians 5. But you were called to freedom, brothers... Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, uh, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the things like these. I want you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. And those who belong to Christ, Jesus, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, Let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become deceited, provoking one another or envying one another. The great objection you have if you're a Christian is that you become like Jesus and you in your character are molded into his image. George W. Bush, if we can have the picture of Bush up, had many embarrassing moments when he was president of the United States. I know this is ancient history as far as some of you are concerned. He was the president before uh, Barack Obama, all right? And uh, he was responsible for uh, the sending of the troops and the allies into Iraq to dethrone Saddam Hussein. And here he is on the USS Abraham Lincoln on the 1st of May, in the year 2003, declaring victory in Iraq. Saddam Hussein had been beaten. He was no longer in power. He was on the run to be discovered, in fact, in a drain pipe some, some months later. But here is uh, George W. Bush celebrating and congratulating his troops. And if you've got a good eye, you'll see the big banner up behind him which says, mission accomplished. And that's the embarrassment. (laughs) Because if you know what happened subsequently, well, yes, the dethroning of Saddam Hussein had taken place. The liberation of Iraq had taken place. But mission was not accomplished. And you and I find yourself in a not dissimilar position in our Christian lives. Because after the downfall of Saddam Hussein and the taking over of Iraq, there were many, many battles yet to take place. Huge battles of reconstruction were necessary. And in our Christian lives, the mission has been accomplished by Jesus Christ, dying on the cross and rising from the dead, dethroning our enemy. But the battle continues. Regardless of that, in fact, if it weren't for that victory having been won, there would be no possibility of our continuing the battle. We fight because the victory has been won. And that's where Paul, in this section of Galatians that we read together, begins, you were called to freedom, brothers. There's no doubt about that. If you go back to the beginning of the chapter, chapter 5 and verse 1, it is for freedom that you have been set free. You don't need to live under obligation either to Satan or to a set of rules or cultural norms any longer. Christ died and rose again from the dead so that you might be free. To that extent, we can say, hallelujah, the mission has been accomplished. But don't then run away with the idea that there are no longer any battles left. Paul wants you to come to terms with the reality of conflict. (laughs) That the Christian life, from beginning to end, is going to be one of warfare. And he's perfectly honest about that. If when you became a Christian, you were told that from now on, all your problems would disappear, you'd have victory over all temptation, you'd just know one miracle after another, you were sold a lie. (laughs) If you've been told that some experience of the Holy Spirit is going to lift you out of the realm of the ordinary so that you know sinless perfection and you're protected from here on, you've been told an untruth. The reality is that as Christians, conflict is the DNA of our Christian life. We live still in a fallen world, and temptation is on every hand. We struggle with our own internal makeup, more of which in a moment, which lets us down in our human weakness that is yet fully to be revealed, er, redeemed. The devil takes an interest in us once we become Christ's. And he wants to trip us up at every possible opportunity. So it's what Paul says here in verse 17. They, that is the flesh on the one hand and the spirit on the other, are opposed to each other. Or they are in conflict with each other. And there's this civil war going on inside of us all the time. It's a remarkable uh, guy called J.C. Ryle, who was the first bishop of Liverpool back in Victorian era. Uh, actually, he looks very austere when you see his photograph, and he was clearly a, a strong uh, man aware of his own authority, so I'm not sure I'd have wanted him as my bishop, but he actually wrote a wonderful book on holiness that's still in print. And in it, he says at one stage, he that would understand the nature of uh, Holiness must know that the Christian is a man of war. If you would be holy, you must fight. The true Christian is a soldier and must behave as such from the day of his conversion to the day of his death. So, welcome to battle stations. (laughs) Welcome to the fight. Uh, Paul doesn't just tell you that's it and leave you to get on with it. He goes on to explain the reason for the conflict, sets it out there in verses 16 and 17. He says that we're actually made up, as it were, of two aspects, of two dimensions of character. There is the, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and our spiritual life with God on the one hand, and there is what he calls the flesh or the sinful nature On the other hand, he mentions that a couple of times, and he mentions in verse 17 that they're opposed to each other, they're in conflict with each other, they don't fit together very comfortably or very easily. And when you became a Christian, the Holy Spirit came to live in your life. You had new ambitions, new attitudes, new desires, but the old didn't die completely wasn't eradicated, and so you feel yourself torn in two every now and again with the battle going on between these words, flesh and spirit. But the use of the word flesh and spirit has led a lot of Christians to misunderstand what Paul is saying. There are two life powers within us, which, like opposite poles of magnet, repel each other, But he's not saying one is material and physical and the other is spirit and immaterial. So he's not saying, listen, as a Christian, your ambition has to be that you have out-of-the-body experiences and ecstatic experiences. You're caught up to the third heaven swinging from the chandeliers in worship and you don't know where you are. And uh, everything is leaving the material world behind you. No, no, that's not what he's saying at all when he uses the word flesh, though a lot of Christians have taught that. The Christian faith is always an embodied faith. The New Testament has a huge amount to say about the body. When you die and eventually are risen with Christ, you won't rise as an immortal soul, whatever that is. You'll rise as a new embodied human being with a different kind of body than the one you've got now, but it will still be embodied. It was a heresy in the ancient world known as Gnosticism that talked about the flesh, the material, the body being evil and dirty. And so certain attitudes towards sex came into that. You want to run away from that. No, no, that's not what Paul is saying. It's a helpful illustration that Bishop Tom Wright uses to explain the difference. He says, think of a ship. The ship could be made of two different kinds of material. You can build a ship out of wood, or you can build a ship uh, out of iron or steel. But he's not talking, says Tom Wright, Paul, when he says flesh and spirit about what you've built your life about, what, what, what goes to constitute it like that. He's talking about what drives the ship, what motivates it, what makes it mobile, what energizes it, what fires it, what fuels it. So he's not worried about whether the ship is made of wood or of uh, metal, but he is worried about whether it's run by steam (laughs) or run by sail, as it were. You can motivate and empower something in two different ways. And we used to sing a song, which I think ought to be the theme song of Slimming World, Make My Flesh Life Melt Away. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And that gives the impression, you know, I'd like to be slimmer, Lord. (laughs) I really would like to be slimmer, (laughs) Lord. But it's not about that sort of material. It's about that motivating power of the sinful nature, which is in... Conflict with the motivating power of the Holy Spirit. So Paul focuses in next on the field of our conflict in verses 19 to 21. As Christians, we will fight battles on many different fronts. Not all battles take place in the same area. You may be fighting at one stage for the Battle of London, or you may be fighting Rommel in the desert down there, Uh, in Africa, and we fight in all sorts of different fields, but the one that he's focusing in on at the moment in Galatians is the battle that goes on within our own characters, because actually the biggest battle site most of us fight is not out there, but in here. D.L. Moody, who was a great evangelist, once said, you know, I have more trouble with myself than with any other human being. And that's true, isn't it? We know that. So Paul takes time to say, let's look at the manifestations, the symptoms, the evidence of the flesh that we ought to be dealing with. And rather than just giving a generalization and saying, well, you understand, he actually spells it out bit by bit. The flesh which we are to reject contains things like of it's what we do and the list that he comes up with covers the whole range of life and is a dreadful negative catalogue of humanity turned in on itself the first area that he addresses in this list is sexual sins you might sit there and think "Hmm, here we go again Christians are always on about sex Well, let me tell you, first of all, I don't think we're on about sex as much as the newspapers or the media are. You can't turn on any program without that being thrust in your face. Can't pick up any newspaper without that being thrust in your face. It's not something Christians are obsessed with. The world is obsessed with it. Let me tell you, secondly, it's important that we are, because, well, if Freud got anything right, and he didn't get much right, (laughs) but one thing he got right was that we are sexual beings. That's the way we're wired up. And so it's a very important part of our nature. It's not surprising, therefore, that Satan should find us vulnerable in this area and want to maximize that. Or It's not surprising that in our fallen humanity, before Christ redeems us, we should struggle there. So he talks about sexual immorality and uh, impurity and uh, debauchery and uh, other such lovely words, sensuality, idolatry. And uh, if I was preaching to an average traditional Christian congregation, I'm not sure they'd suffer too much from some of those temptations, given the age and so on. (laughs) And when he returns to it, he talks about orgies at the past, looking at the average Christian congregation. I'm not sure when any of them last went to an orgy, if they ever <laughs> ever have done. But to the world in which we live, it might be different. The question of promiscuity, sleeping around. question of dirty-mindedness. The question of not being disciplined sexually, And going to excess, which are the things that he talks about, are very real threats for us, aren't they? But if you're not tempted in that area, well, what about religious sins, the next category? Some say that uh, he's talking about something of a totally different world, idolatry and witchcraft. The main accusation the Jews had against the Gentiles was that they believed in idols. And idolatry is very, very common in our world. I remember going to Cuba, to Guantanamo Bay, years ago, to do an evangelistic mission, well before anybody would heard of Guantanamo Bay. And walking around Guantanamo Bay at night, in the warm air, where all the houses had their windows open, and in every house there was a little idol shelf, and a little idol where food was left to feed the idol. That was the very common pattern of worship, Later in the week, I was with the Baptist pastor in his old 1950s beaten-up Chevy driving around town, and we picked up the Methodist minister who had a little plastic bag with him. There no secrets in Cuba, so the Baptist minister says, what have you got in there, then? Oh, he said, uh, idols. A couple came to the church last Sunday, they got converted to Christ, so it's our standard practice. I've been round to cleanse the house of idols. I'm taking them home to burn. If only it were that simple in the Western world. (laughs) Idolatry is everywhere, (laughs) but it's not quite as visible or tangible, is it? The idolatry of materialism, of our rights. Of the choices that we demand, of me first. Idolatry is everywhere. And witchcraft, yes, <clears throat> witchcraft does go on, and Christians can get very sensational about that. It's often in the margins of our society and in a Western scientific world, that may not be the form of temptation we come across most. But some sins can look very religious, but they're sins nonetheless. And if you think, well, that's a million miles from where I am, he turns his attention to a group of emotional or social sins. He talks now about enmity or hatred, about strife, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, rivalry, dissensions, divisions, envy, things that make us fall out from one another, which still illustrate that actually we still think we're in charge and we're the most important person and we're the centre of everything and everybody else has to fit in and agree with us. Sadly, I reflect on any number of churches I know. They would never fall into sexual sins or into religious sins. But self is still written large right throughout the congregation. They haven't yet learned what the New Testament talks about in terms of mutual submission towards one another. You first preferring the interests of others. So we can be very quick when it comes to exercising our temper, very self centered in terms of our ambition, very divisive in terms of what we want in the church. I don't know what the scariest city in the world is that you've ever driven in. I think, for me, it's the city of Bangalore. Actually, I've mercifully been preserved from driving myself, but I've sat in the front passenger seat many times in that city. It is an absolute nightmare. If you think Rome is bad, go to Bangalore. And uh, hundreds of vehicles pile into crossroads, and you think they're bound to be an accident here somewhere. But it's a remarkable thing that there are not more accidents than there are. And you know how it works? There are very subtle signs given by the drivers of vehicles. And actually what they're doing is submitting to one another. They're making eye contact and saying, after you, or it's evident that I should go first. (laughs) But most of the time it works because there is a mutual Recognition and submission towards each other. And if they can do that in the traffic of Bangalore, <laughs> you and I as Christians are called to something far greater. <laughs> and then just in case uh, you haven't got the message, he wraps it all up with a climax in terms of drunkenness, alcohol taking over, you not being in charge of your life or discipline being the responsible human being that God intended you to be, but rather letting other things control you in your life. Addictions of all sorts and orgies. And there's only one destination for all these patterns of behavior, all these acts, he says. You won't be in the kingdom of God. You're not where God controls life. And you won't be in that new creation where God is all in all. So there are Aspects of the flesh to reject, but mercifully, let's be positive, there is a fruit to produce in our lives. And notice the difference. First of all, he talks about acts. Now he talks about fruit. Acts is one thing you do. Fruit is something that grows within you as you cultivate it and give it the right uh, circumstances. Being like Christ isn't just about stop doing things, don't do this. It is about that because they're destructive patterns of behavior. But holiness in the New Testament is always a warm, positive picture. It's like being like Jesus. That's our destination. And when he uses the image of fruit, he uses it deliberately. It's it's an organic picture. Fruit grows because there is a life inside of it. You don't plant an apple tree and, and, and pick grapes off of it. It's the life principle that's inside that gives it the fruit. And if you have the Holy Spirit inside of you, that produces this quality of life within you. The image of fruit is fascinating because fruit takes time to grow. I remember as a child, my parents bought a pear tree and planted it uh, in their garden. In three years, we never had any pears uh, because I think it just takes time to get established. And then they moved house, so we never had any pears in any case. It was a futile and waste of time. But <laughs> that was actually the house they bought from your parents. <laughs> uh, I'm sure the present incumbents enjoy the pears. <laughs> but it takes time, it takes time to grow. So don't expect to become like Jesus just overnight like that. Give it time and persevere. And you see what a wonderful balance of fruit there is here. What a wonderful picture. The fruit of the Spirit. Nine qualities now. As opposed to, what was it, 15 ugly qualities. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Do you notice you go down that list? That actually they don't all fit easily together. You might say, oh, I find no difficulty in uh, being self-controlled. I don't find too much difficulty in being self-controlled. When I was uh, teaching and in a theological college, I think most of my students thought I was a machine. I've written a number of books over the years. I, I don't sit there at my desk sharpening my pencils until the Angels inspire me and the muses come down. 8.30 in the morning, I've got something to write. I sit down and I get on with it. That's me. And because I'm self-disciplined, I can't understand why lazy students can't be self-disciplined. Why do you have to take till 11 o'clock to get up in the morning? <laughs> and so I can actually not be very patient. <laughs> and I can't come to this fruit of the Spirit and say, great, I'm high on self-discipline but I have no patience. No, no. The blend of characteristics is what God wants to see in my life. You folks who are naturally joyful can be a pain in the neck to people who are suffering depression. (laughs) Do you know that? And so you need to marry that joy with gentleness and have that blend of characters. How are you going to do so? What's the resolution to this conflict? How do we get the victory? Well, Paul gives us two clues. He talks in verse 24 about you've crucified the flesh. You put it to death. Crucifixion was that ugliest and most definitive of all ways of execution in the ancient world. It meant they were victims were dead and done with. But actually, when you think of it, crucifixion was not only a decisive act, it was also a process. Jesus died very quickly on the cross, but it took him hours. Some people took a week to die on a cross as they were just hung up and exposed to the elements and the jeers of the crowd and gradually weakened. So when Paul says, you've crucified the flesh, he's both encouraging us to involve ourselves in a deliberate act, but also encouraging us uh, to uh, realize that it may take time. It's a process. There's more than one way to kill the desires of the flesh. You could uh, starve them to death. And there are some who will benefit from that. Well, benefit in the sense of you'll get rid of them. (laughs) Starve them of the oxygen of life. So if you're struggling with pornography, then disconnect your computer from those internet sites. Don't feed those passions. Gradually, the habits will change and the desires will change. One of the ancient fathers of the church said, What you need to do is take these sins out into the world and uh, out into the wilderness and throttle them. Spoke about a, a real battle and conflict that goes on over a period. For some, praise God, it might be a dramatic act of resolution. I've known people who've come to Christ and whatever they've been facing has just been dealt with and cured just like that. However it happens, you are called to identify with your Lord who is crucified on a cross by crucifying your own passions that are evil, that fleshly side of you. But then march, march with the Spirit, That's what Paul is saying here in verse 26 onwards. He talks about keeping, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit, uh, verse 25. The word actually is a military word. Let's march by the Spirit. Last Sunday, I was at the Cenotaph service uh, in London. My wife was on official duty. I was observing what was going on. All the massed bands and the massed ranks of soldiers Uh, Totally bizarre, but only the Brits can do ceremony like that, you know. But just perfectly, no one was out of step. Everyone marching perfectly. Left foot forward, left foot forward, left foot forward. There was a very uh, commanding sergeant major who was controlling the whole thing with a long stick that I wouldn't have liked to have been on the receiving end of. (laughs) You knew who was in charge. And here's an invitation for you. You'll crucify the flesh as you keep in step with the Spirit under the commanding officer of Jesus Christ with the Holy Spirit in charge of the logistics and the supplies in your life. Listen, the victory has been won. To that extent, mission has been accomplished. It happened on the cross and there at the empty tomb. But you will continue to fight until the day you die or until Christ comes again. The battles continue until eventually you see Jesus as he is and become fully and finally like him. But until that day, there is no discharge in this battle. You are under the captain's orders to the end. So keep fighting. As we close this morning, it may well be that there are particular issues mentioned in that list that Paul had, issues of the flesh, desires that are wrong, or other issues that he didn't mention but are nonetheless real, where you realize you need to come and crucify them and have a renewed commitment to marching in step with the Spirit so that you conquer them and become like Jesus.